At EFM, we recognize that the local church is inseparable with the impact of the global gospel, and it is our desire to connect the local church to a global field of impact. Welcome back to the EFM Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Tyndale. Well, today on the EFM Podcast, I'm very excited to bring to you another special guest. His name is Michael Mason. He is a jack of all trades and master of most. And currently, he is serving as the director of missionary studies at Penview Bible Institute. And I'm really excited to have him on. Actually, one of our former interns became one of his students. And she said, you really need to have Mr. Mason come on the podcast. And that was affirmed and supported by her fellow classmates. And that was a no-brainer. I love every time I get to engage with Mr. Mason. Uh, He's an experienced cross-cultural servant. Uh, He's served in Mexico for seven years. He has also completed a Master of Arts degree in Muslim studies. He has a heart for reaching Muslims, and that just kind of comes out as a passion that you pick up on when you get to speak with him. And he also uh, serves as a paramedic. He's a great singer. He plays one of my favorite instruments of all time, the French horn. Uh, He's got a lot of competencies. And and every time I talk to him, I end up learning a lot. And so I'm really excited to share him with you in today's conversation. But above and beyond all of that, he has not allowed his giftedness to run on autopilot. He's a, a very devout, very spiritual man who's got a keen sensitivity to the voice and the Spirit of God and uh, takes uh, issues of prayer and spiritual preparation very seriously. And so I'm thrilled to bring him on the show today. So thank you, Mr. Mason, for joining us. It's great to have you with us. Good to be with you, Tom. And I have been looking forward to this time together. And thank you so much for asking me and allowing me the privilege to be with you. So the theme of our podcast is to create missional conversations to equip the local church for a global impact. And you're right there, kind of in the heart of it, raising up and equipping people who understand a little bit about what a call is to be a cross-cultural servant, what we call sometimes, most times, I guess, missionary. Uh, Sometimes that's a little bit of a restrictive idea, uh, the idea that you have to be called or that you are called, or if you're not called, you're not qualified. Explain to us who is called to be a missionary and what does that mean? That is a loaded question, Tom, and uh, I guess we have to define missionary. You've heard probably everyone, if you are a Christian, is called to be a missionary, and I agree with that to a sense, to a degree. However, for specifically calling missionary a foreign missionary in a foreign context, I'm not sure that would be necessarily the case. However, I believe a whole lot more people need to be doing it than they are. And when we specifically talk about call, I tell my students often, we talk so much about a somewhat a burning bush, God speaking out of the clouds, out of the bushes type of call, when he has already given us his word. And so when I read the Great Commission, and I read the words of Jesus Christ speaking to his disciples, saying, go into all the world and preach the gospel or make disciples of every nation, then I I look at that and I say, do we need any greater call than that? Who is called to be a missionary? If I'm a Christian, and I am to obey Jesus, and I believe I'm to obey his commands, then I am called in that sense. Is everyone called to go to a foreign land? And the obvious answer to that is no. However, I believe we should have a whole lot more people doing it than we have now. So the idea here is the Bible itself is sufficient. And as believers— our disposition should be to fulfill the commands of Jesus, lo and behold, the Great Commission. So let's get started and make it happen. Did I hear you right? That is correct. I just recently 
I um, am somewhat hyperbole, but yet I believe that there's lessons to learn out of hyperbole. I, I looked at some of my students and I said, do you really think God in heaven, if you decide to go to a foreign land and make disciples, is he going to look at you and go, no, 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 please, please don't go. Right. And I think that's kind of a ridiculous idea to think of God in heaven holding you back from going and fulfilling a command he's already told us to do. Boy, I hope our listeners heard that because there are a lot of people that have heard some idea of calling and they think that they've got to have that bush or cloud in the sky experience and otherwise they're off the hook. But real faith believes the unseen, but right there, we don't have to be, uh, it's in black and white. It doesn't have to be that unseen. It's right there, the black and white call of the scripture. And I don't know of any time that God has ever chastised people for being obedient. Right, exactly. So let's go ahead and take this aggressively. We know that the Great Commission is a responsibility of all believers, it's a long way to cross the Atlantic or the Pacific and to go land in some uh, jungle or some Arabic country somewhere. How do we start the Great Commission right now? How can I obey the Great Commission right now in my present context? That's a, it's a fantastic question. And uh, one that is interesting in the present world that we live in, there's a term called globalization which in simple layman's terms simply means that the globe has become smaller and smaller and smaller in the last number of years. And just in my lifetime alone, the globe has become so much smaller than it used to be. And because of that, God is giving us increased ability to fulfill the Great Commission in all sorts of ways. And that is the exciting thing. And when you look at the Great Commission, the church hasn't fulfilled it. Right. And I believe God is looking and saying, listen, church, if you're not going to fulfill it, I have no plan B. You are it. You are plan A to fulfill the Great Commission. There is no other plan, but we're going to make this happen. So what has happened? Through technology, through resources and all sorts of things, the globe has shrank to where presently, in the last week, I have personally engaged with right around 10 to 15 Muslims in the Middle East through Facebook chat groups and other online resources that I'm daily engaging with men, scholars and otherwise. I'm involved in groups that have 30 to 50,000 Muslims in them and more. And is that fulfilling the Great Commission? It is, yes. And the other thing that I look at is immigration, especially here in the United States, but diaspora all around the world or moving from country to country is, you know, God is, I believe, doing this. And if we, when we begin to talk with people, views on immigration become really, really interesting. And uh, I look and say, we're not fulfilling the Great Commission as the church. So what is happening? God is bringing them to our doorstep. How can I obey the Great Commission right now? Walk right outside your back door and find somebody to share the gospel with and make a disciple of right now. Yes, Y-O-U, you. If you are a Christian, if you're a part of the global church, get out, find somebody, and make a disciple. That's great. Let's make it happen. Now, I want to push back on something because I've heard this before, and I'll probably hear it again. You said the church has not fulfilled the Great Commission, and I've heard people flat out deny that with something like of Colossians 1, 6, where it says, the gospel has come to you as it has in all the world. And so uh, there's an idea that, well, the Great Commission was fulfilled back maybe in the apostolic age. And so therefore, we're kind of watching and waiting. Now, respond to that. I was talking with a gentleman. Actually, I've talked with him numbers of times in the last couple of years, and he believes the Great Commission is being fulfilled or has been. And I, I really push back at that when there are 
right between six and 7,000 people groups that have never heard of Jesus. How can we say that God's name has been glorified in all the earth when there are people that still have never heard? Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the earth, mm -hmm. and then will the end come. And I have taught, I have preached on that particular scripture, and I, I remember years ago some great missionary statesmen specifically stating that Greek word that is used in their ethnic specifically means to every specific ethnic group. And so when we begin to talk of unreached, I think we have to define our terms as well. And this means a people group or an ethnic group that has basically pretty much no Christian witness within. We have unreached peoples, and then we have what's, what are known as frontier people groups. And the frontier people groups are those who are not just unreached, but they are also those who don't even have a gospel witness as a possibility around them. Okay, so those are two very, very important terms I want people to capture. So the unreached, they've been exposed very, very minimally to the gospel, but there's not enough internally from that people group to take over. Is that it? That is correct. They have no church. There is typically very little or little to no scripture within their native tongue. There are very, very few few, if any, Christians. And, and this is where we begin to get a little bit dicey because using the word Christian right. is used very, very loosely within demographics or research of numbers. It's typically used to even describe Catholics. It's described to use the, you know, the Greek Orthodox, the Coptics. They're all Christian. It's something that I battle with in Muslim ministry frequently. You know, they show these pictures of the Pope kissing you know, all these idols and go, how can you be a Christian and do this? Well, that's not who I am. I don't identify with that. And, and neither do uh, the majority of the people that are going to be listening to this podcast. And so we have to define terms. And, and, and so that's why I like looking at, okay, are they talking evangelicals? Or are they talking Christian as a whole? And very often what they're looking at is less than 0.02% Christian is an unreached. So that less than 0.02% Christian in the broadest possible term. Correct. So we're talking about a fraction of a fraction in terms of the impact of the gospel in that society. Right. So that's what it takes to be unreached. You mentioned frontier groups, and that's even less. Right. The frontier groups. So when you begin looking at a frontier group, I just had the privilege not long ago, God opened the door for me to go into the Middle East with a group. And while we were there, we had the privilege to share. I personally had the privilege. God opened the door God divinely ordained and moved us to be able to share the gospel with a frontier people group. And that particular group is less than 0.02% Christian and 0.0% evangelical. In other words, there's nobody at all in that people group that professed to be a Christian, that professed the name of Jesus as you and I know it. None. Zero. Wow, we got to get there. And we're going to talk about ways and means and methods in, in just a minute. I want to jump back, though, to something you opened up with the idea of virtual discipleship versus in-person discipleship. Obviously, the COVID world has pushed a lot of us into a virtual world to learn how to make use of tools that, well, they were there for the last 10 or 15 years, but now they become wide scale. I have a love-hate relationship and more of a hate relationship <laughs> with virtual <laughs> opportunities. Tell us a little bit about the successes and the pitfalls of virtual versus in-person opportunities. I, I think it becomes pretty obvious that in-person discipleship is the ideal and I believe the way to go. It affords us more opportunity. And discipleship isn't just about a curriculum. It's about coming up beside someone who does not know Jesus 
and guiding them and leading them to follow him fully. And so when I look at it, I like to use curriculum in a discipleship because it guides me, helps me, kind of sends me down a path, also allows me to be able to somewhat replicate what I'm doing with somebody else and they can turn around and do it a lot easier. I know what they're teaching. However, that's not what it's all about. And so when I look at virtual, it becomes difficult. Is it impossible? No. Actually, one of my students has been doing this virtually into Iran. Wow. And she has several pre-Christians that are exceptionally interested in the gospel They have been doing Bible studies all the way through the Old Testament, and uh, they pray together. (laughs) The girls from Iran love doing it because they sense peace, they sense hope, they sense joy. That is all over a video platform. Wow. So is it possible? Yes. However, are there pitfalls? Obviously. You know, when I think of the discipleship that I have done with lots and lots of people, through the course of my ministry, that discipleship has been hours and hours and hours that I don't know that we can even count in minutes, but probably days spent with people doing life, Um, sitting down and eating lunch and eating supper and being with their family, being with their wife, talking about how to raise a family. How do I live my life out in a marriage, as a God-fearing Christian, you know, what does it look like to serve Jesus Christ in the world as a mechanic, as a carpenter, you know, as a taxi driver, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that is living the Christian life with them. And so when I talk about discipleship, I I like to talk also about mentoring. How do you mentor somebody fully and effectively through video. It's got its challenges for sure. It it is very challenging. Is it possible? I believe it is, but it's difficult. So I, I have a saying that I like to say, I tell my students, never do something by yourself. Always take somebody with you. Well, how can you do that through video? How can I go and witness and take somebody with me through video? That's where it becomes really, really difficult. However, technology has allowed us, I believe, to do things that we could never have done before. And when I begin looking at, wow, we can go into unreached places that have completely closed doors through video. Why are we not doing this more as a church? I agree with you entirely. We should strive for in-person mentorship, discipleship, but if we can't get there, that's not an excuse for not doing anything. Right. But uh, let's go ahead and make use of whatever tools we've got. Now, when you were talking about discipleship, you used the word mentorship. That's something we've talked about before on this podcast. And I think that's great because many times when we think about discipleship, there's about five or six lessons that relate to Bible reading, prayer, witnessing, giving. They're helpful to guide the conversation, but they're very, very incomplete. What you were talking about was marriage, parenting, workplace. Just flesh that out a little bit more and maybe help somebody understand when are they ready to disciple others? What kind of maturity do they need to have before they can start leading others to walk with Jesus? (laughs) Wow. Okay. I am a big, big proponent of when my new disciple that has just got saved and actually just gave an illustration today in a class, I'll never forget the day that Kevin called me on the phone and Kevin said, Pastor Mason, I'm ready. I think I need this saved thing that you've been talking to me about. Can I come? Saved thing. Yeah. (laughs) Come on. And uh, he came to my office. He knelt down at a couch And I'll never forget it, tears streaming down his face. He looked at me and he said, wow, wow, I don't know. I have this feeling running down my arm from my shoulder down to my tip of my fingers. Is that it? Oh, my. (laughs) I looked at Kevin and I said, Kevin, is the guilt gone? Oh, yes, there's no more guilt. Do you know 
do you know that your sins are forgiven? Yeah, yeah, yes, that's it. Wow. And I remember Kevin standing up from the couch, and I said, Kevin, you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's time to tell someone about it. Yeah. We walked out the door, and we found a couple people to tell. Then we sat down, and the very first thing that we did was we took a piece of paper, and the Greek word is oikos, of course, meaning my group of people that I can influence. And I said, Kevin, you're going to write down five to ten names. Who do you need to share with this week? Kevin went home, began to share with his mom, began to share with his dad, began to share with his sister, began to share with his brother. He was an older guy, still living at home. Before several weeks, his mom would get saved at their kitchen table. His dad wanted nothing to do with it, would flee when I arrived on the scene. He would go to chop wood or whatever. And uh, about two weeks in, his dad finally looked at me and said, I don't know what happened to Kevin, but wow. Praise God. God has really done something. I need whatever happened to Kevin. Yeah. And that's what began to happen. I look and I go, why can't they begin to fulfill the Great Commission right away? They have zeal. They have vision. They're gung-ho about it. I am a big proponent of setting them loose immediately. When we were in Mexico, one of my new converts, Arnold, was one of my biggest disciplers, and he started right away. He was a drug addict. He had been a cocaine addict, an alcoholic, and he looked at me, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, Pastor Mason, are you sure that I can do this? (laughs) I said, well, let's see what the Bible has to say about this. Let's go to Mark chapter 5. I don't have it right in front of me, but I believe it's about verse 21 or 23. Of course, Mark chapter 5 is where Jesus and the disciples go across the Sea of Galilee. They get across the Sea of Galilee, and there's the Gadarene demoniac. And Jesus casts out the demons in him, and the Gadarene demoniac is so excited to serve Jesus. He says, I want to get in the boat and follow you. And What does Jesus say? No, go back to Decapolis, the 10 cities where you are from, and tell them what great and marvelous things God has done for you. And I look at that example of Jesus himself, and I look at us, and I begin to look and say, okay, what would we be saying? Well, uh, he's still a new convert. He's a newbie. I don't think he can do that yet. In my experience, the ones that have shared the gospel the most, the best, and actually have become the best disciplers are the brand new converts when I set them loose. And when I have people oppose me on this, and I have a lot of people that have, this has been my response. I ask a question, and it is this, what limit does Jesus put to obeying the Great Commission in Matthew 28? Does it say only those who have been a part of the faith for two years go and make disciples of all nations? No, there's no qualifiers that Jesus gives at all. None. Zero. And if we are to obey the commands of Christ, and I believe we are, because he says those who Love me, obey my commandments. And so when I look at that, a new convert, they need to do that too. They need to obey his commands because they love him. So what what do I do? I set them loose and say, let's do this. Do I just send them by themselves? No. Uh, This is part of the mentorship where I go, you're going to watch me do this for a time or two. Then I'm going to let you do it while I watch you. And then you're just going to do it for a while. And if you have questions, you can ask me. And then by the end of that, they're ready to roll on their own. So I believe it's important to have them obey the commands of Christ right away. Very good. So that is the Great Commission. I think many times we launch into the all that I've commanded you, and we miss those two little words 
that precede it to obey. And so there is the content of the gospel and the scriptures that have to come, but it's a content that comes in action with active obedience. And so you're a college professor, you've seen this. There are a lot of young people that are coming studying lots of theories, but half of what you're teaching isn't, (laughs) it's not landing anywhere because they don't have experience to absorb it. And so by, by teaching them to obey, you're starting to create a gospel-centered, gospel-focused life in the lives of the new believers to where when you come to the rest of the commands and the doctrines and the heavier things, now they've got a framework, a foundation or a, a, a landing ground where these are not just theory, but it makes sense. And so I think it's, it's really crucial. And if I can insert something here, Tom, yeah. I feel it important, and I, and I want to make sure this is, this is here, in teaching them to obey, I make it a goal from day one in all of my discipleship, and I, I put a heavy, heavy, heavy emphasis on this, and that is obedience out of a heart of love. Why do I obey? obey? Is it some legalistic, I have to obey these rules because the church said so? No, I obey because I love God. Right. I want to obey him. So it's the obedience out of a heart of love. I emphasize this every time I'm with them. Why do you need to do this? Because you love God. That's why. He said, obey me. You love me. You're going to obey me. Obey my commandments because why? Because you love me. I'm glad you... uh made that interjection. That is absolutely essential. And if it's if it's anything less, then it's not real discipleship. One other thing I want to tag on to in this conversation regarding investing them immediately into some form of obedience or ministry is that teaching somebody to be a good disciple, following Jesus out of a heart of love into obedience does not mean you're making them a leader of the church. And I think a lot of people freak out because they're so afraid that, you know, in two weeks they're going to be preaching. That's that's not necessarily what you're talking about. We are trying to, to help people understand the DNA of following Jesus is that we share our faith. Exactly. And that's an important aspect. We have specific criteria given for elders, for deacons, for bishops, and those positions of leadership We have criteria given to us specifically in Scripture that I follow and I think is extremely important. However, who is the one to decide when that person's no longer a newbie? Who is the one that's going to decide, oh, that person's not a new convert anymore, so now they can actually go disciple? I don't find that in Scripture. Who's the one to decide and, and make the decision, oh, you know what, they can now obey because... They've been following Jesus for a certain uh, a period of time. And what I have found generally in the church where we put our major stick of obedience is in church attendance. I don't believe that to be correct. So if my disciple's attending church three times a week and does it faithfully for so long, and then, then he's no longer a newbie. Yet we have people that have attended faithfully for 30, 40, 50, even 60 years and have never one time won a soul, much less discipled anybody. Where's the maturity, spiritually wise, in that person? There is none. And um, that is the problem that I have with our present church model. And when I look at our present church model in that way, I go, okay, so that person that sat in church for 30 years and never won a soul ever, never discipled anybody, they quote unquote qualify to be the deacon and the bishop and the the elder. And yet the new convert who's out there and discipled 10 people already, won 10 people for Christ, they're still a newbie. And I understand that teaching, and I'm not saying they should be elevated. I'm saying my problem is on the backside of that, where we elevate based off of how long they've attended, based on what they have put on or taken off in regards to standards-wise. I'm not against standards, that's not what I'm saying. But when we look, is that the standard of obedience that God is calling us to. And we need to be looking at, I believe, more maturity based on their obedience to the commands of Christ and fulfilling the Great Commission and discipling and evangelizing. And what are they doing there? 
Good. This is Mr. Mason on fire, and I uh, love, I love <laughs> where we're going with this. Uh, we're not compromising anything. We are insisting on doing it the way Jesus said to do it, and I think that that is what it takes to bring real revival, given the priority where the priority sits. Okay, so let's uh, let's move on now. What does it take for someone who is engaged in discipleship, uh, even you know, we're going to throw out this term missionary, whatever that means, whether it's immediately locally or, or cross-culturally, what does it take to succeed? Mm. That is a, a loaded question because I believe we have to first define what is success. And in missions, yea, even ministry, period, I have talked to a lot of people that have put a lot of effort in and to, I guess we could say to our materialistic society, where we count people and we count money and we count the number on the board or the number in the book, they have not had a whole lot of success. And I remember um, listening to an old, old statesman of a missionary. They were actually missionaries in the northern Sahara Desert to the Torek tribe, an unreached tribe. And they went 20 years without seeing a convert. That's tough. And I remember him saying, I'd come home to my wife and she'd look at me and say, so have we been successful yet? Have we had a convert? And he said, I looked at at her and I'd say, you know what? This is all about perspective. I haven't had a convert yet, but I've sure planted a lot of seed. (laughs) What is success? All of us want to see numbers. All of us want to have a hundred disciples that we have discipled, that we've seen get saved, and now they're fully following God. I think success, first of all, in God's eyes, is us planting the seed. How much seed are we planting? Of course, we find the principle of the farmer and the sower, and some, you know, if you sow a little, you're going to reap a little. You sow a lot, we're going to reap a lot. And yet it's not up to us to determine the quote-unquote success as maybe the world would count success because it's not us to grow the fruit, is it? And so we simply plant the seed. Others may water. It is God that gives the increase. And at the end of the day, I have to look at my success not from man's point of view, but I have to begin somehow looking at it at God's point of view. And I have to say, The power is in the seed to be planted and not in me, the thrower. And I have to leave that in the hands of the Holy Spirit to say, I don't understand why at times in my life I have had extremely productive times where I've seen lots and lots and lots of people get saved and being discipled. And then other times, hardly nothing. What is true success in missions? We want to see people saved. We want to see them come to Christ. Will we see that happen in every single aspect, in every single mission field, in every single endeavor? I'm not sure that we will. Why don't we see that more? I'm not sure I necessarily want to point fingers because I've talked to people that have put in a lot of effort. They have prayed. And I believe that's one of the keys to success is prayer, fasting. And yet at the end of the day, I know it's possible to pray and pray and pray and fast and fast for days and days and days and still not see success as man would say we would have success. And I think we have to, at the end of the day, if we have done our best, and here's a key word I believe in that is faithfulness. Have we been faithful? to obey God. If I have been faithful to obey God and do what he wanted me to do, then I have had success. Very good. I appreciate that humble uh, perspective uh, because there are a lot of people that are still waiting to reap the harvest and for whatever, whatever reason that season hasn't come. But let me go back. You mentioned the the farming analogy, the planting the seed analogy. And I want to 
just open this discussion with you. When we've talked about the sower with the four fields, the wayside, the thorns, the rocks, and then the good soil. Somebody was talking to me in the last couple of years and kind of changed my perspective on this. The typical approach that I've heard is that you just, you keep throwing the seed without respect to where it lands. Farmers never do that. Farmers know that seeds cost money. And if they're going to be effective in farming, then they're going to plow, they're going to tear up the rocks, they're going to weed out the place, and then they're going to plant the seed. And the the idea was there's a lot of time that takes in building up relationships and investing in prayer to create a ground that will be cultivated. And that still may not necessarily mean that you get to see the the, the harvest season come, but you can cultivate the ground to make a harvest possible. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's something that is lacking in a lot of places. And I'm deeply convicted, deeply convicted by a gentleman I heard in a missions conference numbers of years ago, actually from a foreign context, and so not from the U.S. And as he was speaking, he was talking about them planting churches where they were, the number of churches they had planted. And I sat there and listened and thought, how can that be possible? And then he began to say, but our preparation." We do a year to two years of demographic research, and we do a full year of fasting and prayer before we ever go into planting a church. And then he began talking about the fasting and prayer that they do. And he said, I look at my churches and I look at my pastors and tell them, if you're not seeing souls being saved, then you need to go to the mountain for 20 or 30 days and fast. And I've talked, I've preached, I have talked about fasting. I, I do it myself. And, and, and I remember numbers of years ago, somebody coming to me and saying, but is that practical? And my response is, do we really want to see God move? Are we talking about practicality here? Are we talking about, you know, I had one gentleman look at me and say, that's not even possible. I said, absolutely, it is possible. I know lots of people that have done it. And, and, and this gentleman who was preaching at this conference looked at us and said, if you're not preparing the ground through prayer and fasting at a lengthy period of time, don't expect to have fruit. Is it possible that the preparation of the ground is not taking place in a lot of places? And there again, I don't want to just paint a broad brush because I've talked to a lot of people pastors with good hearts, missionaries with good hearts, good people who I believe have fasted, have prayed, have done their best and still have not seen the results or the quote-unquote fruit like we would like to see. And uh, somewhere that fruit will come. It just may not be them that is going to see the visible results here on earth, but we serve a God who's keeping perfect tally of who prepped the ground, who laid the seed, who it was. And one day we will know. And, and in that aspect, I want to encourage the, the pastors, the missionaries, those who are out laboring, if you're not seeing fruit like you would like to see, keep pushing, keep planting, keep fasting, keep praying, do it and keep doing it until the very end. We know there's a reward coming and we know that God is moving and God is working Maybe the person after you will see the results. Very good. Well, let's do it. Now, let's go on to the next one. What is the best way when you're thinking about going overseas in that intensely cross-cultural setting, what are some of the best ways that the local layman can start preparing? I believe that as, as a local layman getting ready to go overseas, the best preparation has to be in the time of prayer. I have dealt with lots of things on foreign fields. And, and it's like a, a woodsman going to prepare to chop down a tree. If you don't have a sharp axe, don't expect to chop the tree down. And in the spiritual realm, when we go into missions, we never know what's going to be around the corner. 
We never know what's going to happen. We never know when I have out of the blue had somebody come up and go, my daughter this morning, she's, she's screaming and hollering and crying. I need help. I need what's going on. Well, we prayed and prayed and prayed. And in those moments, you better have prepped before time because you don't have the time to go, you know what, we're going to lay aside a week of prayer and fast and come back and pray with this little girl. The axe has to be sharp at the moment. And that goes for whether whether you have situations of demons, demon possession, or even, even situations of, I believe, reaching out and actually trying to win souls for Jesus. The axe has to be sharp. And if your axe isn't sharp through the place of prayer and fasting, don't expect to have the power necessary when the time comes that you need it. And so I believe the greatest preparation for missions work has to come in prayer and fasting. Okay, that's good. Now I want to push a little bit further for some clarity. So prayer is kind of an, uh, it's wide open topic. And so when most people think of prayer, they think of, you know, the 30 requests that have been on their laundry list for the last three weeks. I don't think that's what you're talking about. Talk to us a little more about the practicalities of of what it means to sharpen the axe in the place of prayer. Prayer is a relationship with God. It's me getting alone with God and having a relationship with Him. I believe we have heard, we have practiced prayer, I believe, often in a wrong way. And I'm not saying that requests for the sick are wrong, but in most of our evangelical circles, when you go into a church, The list is long of those who are sick. But what about those who are spiritually not well? How much time is spent in travail? How much time is spent in intercession or pleading and asking God? And so when we talk about prayer, I I, I often think about Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, ask, seek, knock. And the word that is used there is ask and keep on asking. Be persistent. Knock and keep on knocking. Seek and keep on seeking. And if you do that, you're going to find the door is going to be open. The answer is going to be given to you. And so being persistent in prayer and intercession, being persistent in my relationship, being intentional in my relationship with God, getting alone with Him, spending time in praise and spending time in thanksgiving, spending time thanking Him for what He has done for me in a deep time of prayer with Him, spending time listening waiting for God, meditating. I believe meditation is is a lost art. And of course, I'm not talking about some kind of transcendental meditation and coming uh, to one with with myself out into the in the universe somewhere but but meditating on God and meditating on his word and meditating on what he's speaking to me about and then in intercessory prayer beginning to ask God, God, would you give me a burden. That was the beginning, I believe, of my life of missions persistently and intentionally in lengthy periods of prayer. God, give me a burden for the lost. Help me to see the world as you see it. And as I began to get a heavier burden for the lost, and as God began to just lay on me a burden for the world and allow me to see the world as he sees it, that is what turned into a call to go. Not necessarily a burning bush call, but a specific, wow, thank you, God, you're giving me this burden. I can't help but fulfill the Great Commission. I believe it's something we're lacking in our churches. Where is the travail? Where is the true intercession for those that are unsaved? Where is the true travail and intercession for our cities? Do we love our town and our cities enough to cry for it? Do we have enough compassion to cry over and walk in and out of the streets of our towns and our cities and say, oh God. Would you take over here? 
believe prayer walks are exceptionally important. This is where I go into my city and I take a block and I just begin walking around it, claiming it for Jesus, claiming the blood of Jesus to, to prevail in that area. I like to do that before I ever go out and knock on a door, before I ever go out and, and, and attempt to evangelize. Do a prayer walk and just ask God, oh God, defeat the devil. And I believe that's where the spiritual battle lies. We're in a spiritual warfare, and, and it's intense. And I don't believe we're winning it in our churches. Why? Because we're not spending the time in prayer. You've said a lot of great stuff there, and I want to pick up on a couple things. When people start talking about prayer, I tend to get a little nervous because I often hear things that they preach good, but there's not always a good solid scriptural. There's good experience, but maybe not good scripture to back up uh, what was said there. And one of the terms that I often hear is this idea of travail, which is typically a woman in labor term. That's kind of like my first go-to definition. We're talking about something very hard, very, very deliberate. But one of the things that I've kind of got tripped up over in years past is that, well, no woman who's pregnant actually gets to determine her own time of labor. Uh, many would love to, uh, but that, ha that that comes upon her. And, and I, I think what you mentioned there is a great way to find that, and that is get in tune with God, being sensitive to God, being you know serious about meditating, asking Him to speak to you. Ask Him to give you the burden. If you, I, I don't know that we can always just generate a, a burden on our own. I think you know I've, I've tried many times, but it hasn't come. But when God gives you the burden, boom. Now we're talking. Now we can start praying. And so I would just want to encourage those who are listening, if you don't have the burden and you're not sure how to pray or when to start or why, ask just ask God to give it to you. He wants to. Absolutely. And once you find that, it's going to be clear and you're going to start walking in places and in prayer and in actual proximity that you maybe never have, have walked in before. And if I could interject here on the word travail and, and just kind of give maybe an illustration to maybe help demonstrate that word. When we were in Mexico, I remember one, I don't remember exactly which service it was, but there was a service in which a, a gentleman showed up. His name was Ulysses. And Ulysses showed up in our service, enjoyed the service. He was somewhat uh, inebriated, a bit drunk. And, uh, he left, and, and I don't know why, but I never got his contact information, never got where he lived. And I remember going home and thinking about Ulysses, and I'd pray for Ulysses, but about two or three weeks, maybe a month later, it was a Tuesday night. I had come back from a discipleship time up in the mountains for one of our mountain churches, and I came home, and I had spent some time in prayer before bed, before going to bed, I remember laying down in bed, and I couldn't sleep. And that night, I'll never forget it, as the name Ulysses just kept coming back to me, and coming back, and coming back, and I couldn't get away from it. And I remember laying there in bed and saying, God, I want to sleep, I need to sleep, but would you help Ulysses? I don't know where he's at. I don't even know where to find him. And that burden grew. And what you said, if you don't have a burden, you're not going to be able to probably get it yourself, but you got to ask God. When he begins to put a burden on you, there will be no doubt. And in this case, there was no doubt. There was a burden being placed on me that night for Ulysses. I remember getting out of bed. I remember going out into the hall and pacing back and forth and downstairs and upstairs for hours throughout the night in deep, deep agony. And I guess, yes, the likeness of the woman in labor, God had placed a burden on me for Ulysses so strong. It was like I was in labor. God, I can't get away from this. I can't sleep. I can't do anything about it. I don't know what to do except call out and beg you. And I remember the next day, 
was a Wednesday. I went about my activities and said, Lord, and through the night of prayer, I had asked God, I said, God, would you please, please somehow bring Ulysses back to us? And Brother Tom, I'll never forget, that night as I pulled my truck into church, that night in Tapachula, who was standing in the drive. <laughs> wow. Ulysses. Come on. And he was partly drunk. I got out, gave him a hug. I said, Ulysses, I was praying for you last night. Couldn't get you off of my mind. He went in, and that night, Ulysses gave his heart to Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about when we talk about travail. Can we bring that on ourselves? I'm not sure that we can. I believe it has to be Holy Spirit-driven, Holy Spirit-given. In other words, that travail burden has to be laid upon us by God himself. So ask him. Ask him to send it to you. And if you're not real sure, I would encourage you to go to some of the places that are in great need. You know, an issue that that my listeners know is very heavy a burden that I'm under is the whole issue with the slaughter of the unborn children. Yes. There are churches that abortion is, it's a statement on their bulletin and they say, Lord, help us to end abortion. But I'm telling you, if you take your proximity and put your proximity in front of a place where they're murdering kids yes, and you see the mothers go in, sometimes being drug in with tears and teddy bears, you're going to get a more of a burden than you've ever experienced and you're going to start praying. And so I would encourage you start walking the streets of the inner city, start walking past your neighbors and you can, you can start to ask God, where are you speaking? Where are you leading? How are you guiding? The travail will come if you make yourself available and you ask for it. Absolutely. So we're going to have to interrupt the conversation right here, but there is more to come. And I've been encouraged, and I hope that uh, that you have been given some good <laughs> directions on how to be a better disciple and a better disciple maker. So stay tuned. Thank you so much, Brother Mason, for joining us. We'll come back next time.